I'm Brandon Munro. I'm the CEO of Bannerman Energy, and we have the Atango Uranium Project in Namibia. It's very large, it's very advanced, and we've just released our definitive feasibility study, and we have our environmental clearances. So we are now on the pathway to financing and constructing this project. Brandon, good to see you, and thanks for coming uh, so quickly to um, talk us through this. We've had a, a quick read uh, through. A lot of work in, in, in Valsa. Congrats on that one. I would say, however, the market's uh, done the same thing and just shrugged its shoulders. Uh, you must be disappointed in that, surely. Well, I mean, you look across the whole uranium sector in the last two days, they've all been down. Uh, we're no orphan there. And the reality is an advanced technical study. It's not like a drill hit. It is the type of news that takes time to digest. The initial feedback that I've had from analysts and professional investors has been very positive. And the reality is that the types of investors that will move the needle here in terms of volume and ultimately share price, they're going to take a bit of time to understand this document and really read through it. So, no, we're not disappointed. It's, it's, um, it's what's happened to all of our peers in the last couple of days in uranium. And... Uh, yeah, that's that's just what it is. But the point is that we've got a really solid document out there and we can now build from there. Okay, well, but you better give some of those um, highlights in terms of the NPV, IRR, etc. What are we looking at? So the NPV post-tax is $209 million US dollars, which delivers an IRR of 17%. That's at a $65 uranium price. And we've put the numbers on based on that assumption to create continuity from our PFS that we released in August last year and the scoping study that we released in August 2020. It's important for analysts and fund managers to be able to track your progress. So to then suddenly change the game on them by choosing a different price assumption uh, wouldn't go down very well. Now, the market's changed a lot. The uranium sector is fundamentally different and more buoyant and has far greater prospects than it did when we started on this journey in 2020. So we felt it was appropriate to offer uh, an alternative price assumption at $80 a pound, which we think is more appropriate for investors to judge our project on. And so that more than doubles the NPV. And what it does to the um, IRR is it puts it at about 25%. Well that, that, well, that feels a lot better because otherwise, uh, well, even at 65 bucks, where, what's the uranium price today? What, 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 would, what are these term contracts being signed at, sort of mid-50s at the moment? Yeah, thereabouts. There isn't a lot of term contracting being done right now. Spot price is lurking around in the vicinity of $50 over the last few months. And uh, things are quiet. You know, things are quiet in the uranium industry, things are quiet in uranium equities, and that's actually the ideal time to be knuckling down, getting a study finished and getting it out there. Well, well let's, let's talk about that, because timing is, is everything. You had full control of when you could release this. What, when you say is a good time to kind of release something like this, this is sort of information in the marketplace, why, why, tell me more about why you think that. Well, you've got to remember a DFS is not an announcement in a vacuum. You know, it's not a drill result. We're not a tiny little baby company that's trying to find its way. We are a real company that is one of the very most advanced projects in the uranium sector. And there are a whole range of enablers that a definitive feasibility study does for us as a business who are moving towards building the project. So it enables us to engage with utilities in a very different way. 
It enables us to gauge with government. You can see that's Vintook behind us. I know you know it well. Um, because I'm over here talking to the Ministry of Mines and Energy, we lodged a mining licence application in August and presenting a definitive feasibility study of this quality, particularly with the sorts of numbers we've been able to put out, that now gives us a very different discussion with the Ministry about our mining licence. Um, we're able to engage with uh, the engineering firms. So we've progressed through front-end engineering and design. We've now finalised the DFS. There's a range of different work streams in front-end engineering and design from here. But to a certain extent, you need to rule a line under your main dominant technical study before you can start um, chasing those different optimizations. Um, and then, of course, when it comes to building the team, having a DFS under your belt is a huge enabler. You know, we're trying to get the best people in the world and it's very hard for them to make decisions to leave well-paid jobs when they don't quite know what this project looks like. Now we can go, here it is. Here's the DFS. If you want, knock yourself out with the 956 pages that sits behind it. And uh, you now know exactly what this project looks like in the current environment, taking into account all of the concerns that people have got about cost inflation and availability and supply chain issues. Well, you don't have to have those question marks because we now have a current DFS that defines the economics and the um, execution plan for this doc, uh, for this project. Okay, I mean, I, I mean, that, that, that's quite that's quite interesting in itself. But look, the and I do want to talk about pricing assumptions in the market l later on, if I may. I'll come back to that now. But you know, but if I'm looking, if I'm looking um, at this project with my finance hat on, or if you if your if your conversations with financiers, um, they're going to be doing the same thing. You're looking at a well, it's a, it's a small project, you know, at sixty five bucks, two hundred. You know, just over two hundred million NPV, seventy percent IRR. It feels small. So you, they've got to fill. They've got to time this right, and you've got to time those conversations right for the, you know, for the, you know, for the benefit of your shareholders to maximise the the best outcome for your shareholders and make sure this isn't an expensive capital raise. So, what does that path forward look like when it comes to getting the capex, which is up by fifteen percent? I note. Um, you know, put in place for this project? Well, we can come back to capital in a moment, but um, you're right. It is about timing it. And the way you don't time a rising bull market is to wait until the bull market's already there in full force, and then you try and get a project together. So part of the magic that we need to deliver is to be moving this project forward. So as we see the uranium market really start to reflect the current supply and demand dynamics, and we see a price going through those price targets or those price assumptions that we've got in this project, we can hit the ground running, we can immediately finance, and we can get constructing to deliver into that deficit. Now, we've done a couple of things to put ourselves in that position, Matt. The first one is we've moved the project forward and we've got it into the place where it is. So we can deliver into that and we can be producing pounds. If the market's ready for it, we can finance, say, the uh, final investment decision towards the end of next year so that we can be delivering pounds in 2026. But the other thing that we've done to put ourselves in that position is we've been at this project for 15 years. Our shareholders understand that we will be patient until we see the right price signals and until we can lock in a contracting portfolio that optimises all of our stakeholders, including shareholder value. 
We've got a very strong cash balance. We have $50 million in the bank at the end of September, and we haven't spent much of that this quarter. And that enables us to be patient in two ways. One is, you know, we're not rushing to a financing. We will do it on our own own terms in a way that suits our shareholders. But also that cash balance enables us to continue with the engineering, to keep moving this project forward in the absence of having a big debt facility to draw down. So we think that we'll get that right. We've invested as a company heavily in understanding this market. Um, you know, and many of your audience would know, Matt, that I've been very involved in World Nuclear Association, the, both the modelling of World Nuclear Association's demand and supply forecasts and other aspects of the organisation. So we're very well plugged into the nuclear sector. And I would certainly like to think that we've got one of the most nuances understanding of the market in the uranium sector at large, globally. Where that will pay for shareholders is getting that timing question right. And we don't want to be too late. And so that's why we're taking these steps today as we have been over the last couple of years. Okay. Can we, what about the, the, the point with regards to the increased cost? Like I, I have companies on here every week who talk to me about their economic studies and inflation has knocked them sideways. Supply chains have, you know, are affecting um, pricing and delivery times and time is money and all of that sort of stuff. You're, you're up 15%. So obviously that's not too bad in that context. But, but nevertheless, is there a kind of end in sight? We're seeing fuel prices come down, but those conversations are ongoing with OPEC. We're not quite sure how that all, all, all plays out. So are you at all nervous about the sort of continuing rising cost environment? So first of all, 15% is a win. Um, I've got to tell you, it is hectic out there when it comes to cost inflation. Um, a mine down the road from us recently released a revised study and they were up 36%. So the team, and I've got to say this, the team have done a magnificent job controlling that cost inflation. And that 15% actually includes some new capital on an asset handling facility that we plan to build at port. So there's $10 million worth of the capital increase, almost $10 million that's accountable for new capex that we've introduced. So, and we've done that at the same time as securing an operating cost win of about 5%. So even though the headline capital number, including contingency has gone up a bit, um, the overall economics are essentially the same as to where they were with the PFS. Now, really good point that you make about what happens to capital going forward. Um, because one of the main reasons that we're continuing with the front end engineering and design and continuing to invest in moving the project forward is to make sure that these numbers are current. Uh, it would be a really um, disappointing position to be in. If we did all of this work, we created this DFS, really solid, high quality, good numbers, and then the market wasn't ready for us. And in 12 months time, it's out of date and it's useless, which is what a 12 month old DFS is right now in the current environment. So we will be continuing to work with these numbers and making them bankable so that we constantly have numbers that we can show to a financier or show to a counterparty or show to a utility that are up to date, that can stand up to whatever level of interrogation they receive. Um, now, in terms of the capital um, forecast or the, the capital environment looking forward, it swings and roundabouts. There are some things that are coming down. There are other aspects that are going up. Part of the reason we've been able to control capital in such a 
um, effective way is a very large proportion of our capital is being provided from South Africa. Um, the Namibian dollar is pegged to the rand for people who don't know. And the depreciating rand has helped us a lot. It's certainly helped us contain that capital. So all of the contracting, all of the earthworks, all of the steel, all of the concrete, that just comes over the border from South Africa and um, is helped by a sort of perennially depreciating rand. Um, but the other thing is we still have a number of optimization opportunities that take time and we weren't able to squeeze those benefits into the DFS, but we're working them on, uh, on them during the feed process. And some of those um, opportunities are really quite advanced. If we'd, you know, if we'd started them or identified them three months earlier, we probably would have incorporated them into the DFS. So that gives us a buffer where we believe that we'll be able to hold these numbers constant and uh, even in the face of continuing cost inflation in the broader resources sector. I, I, I want to talk to you about what's going on in, in with, with sales and marketing in, in, in a second, because it's, re, it's really, really important. And obviously, I think there's a section um, in the DFS which, which kind of ad addresses this in terms of like the, the shipping and, you know, to con conversion facilities, et cetera, and also your ability to insert yourself into the, the, the marketing ecosystem for, for uranium and, and nuclear. But... We've seen recently Peninsula, another Aussie company with their, their project in Wyoming, uh, you know, come, come out with um, some numbers. They've also raised, raised some money and they've been hit hard. I just wonder, have you got a message for the, the market or to your shareholders about, again, coming back to this timing things, like it, it, it feels like there are very few companies actually talking about getting into production anytime soon, right? And there's very few companies have, you know, are sitting with DFSs, advanced development stories. But the ones that have dared to kind of, you know, put their head above the parapet are being, you know, shot at. I think that the, the market is looking for words of comfort, understanding about how this thing plays out uh, and why the, the, the timing component of showing um, financiers um, governments, um, utilities, and all the other people who need to sort of see where you're at. It, it, you know, you're, there's a kind of sort of mismatch in the marketplace between the, the uranium enthusiasts and you trying to doing what you were doing. And then, and, and then perhaps if you could help explain, you know, why, why the kind of utilities, why all of these guys need to sort of see this now. So they come back to the sort of timing thing. I can, I can deal with the moving price of uranium, if, you know, if it's 55 today, 65 at some point, and, you know, all last year, people banging and shouting for $200 uranium and beyond. Um, we've had some bigger numbers than that. I'm not too worried about uranium price, but I, I, I just trying to understand again from you, why would you put your head above the parapet first? Why be a first mover in all of this? Well, because we offer some tremendous advantages for utilities in particular. You've got to remember, this is a very tight, constrained uranium market at the moment. The price doesn't reflect that, and neither do equities, but that's a different matter. We've got three players, only three players, who absolutely dominate uranium supply in this sector, two of which are linked to government, um, being the Kazakh government and the French government. So only one truly independent player in this sector, uh, which is Cameco. So the utilities are very keen to bring on new production, particularly if it comes from 
Namibia, which of course is um, geopolitically very uh, very broad in its um, capacity to deal with different uranium markets. So whilst you say it's a small project and you know 300 million maybe isn't massive in the energy space and in the nuclear power space, but it's still three and a half million pounds, Matt. That's enough to service seven to eight gigawatts of nuclear power. So it is still amongst the very largest projects that are close to development right now. And the utilities also particularly want um, Itango to come on because they can understand, and I've now got the opportunity to explain further to them, that this might all be a bit like Rossing. And what I mean by that is Rossing in the 70s was very much like Itango is now. Lots of people said, oh, the, the grade's very low, it's too low. Um, it had a mine life in the 70s of 16 years. Well, that mine life of 16 years, they're 45 years on now, and they're looking at another 10 years of mine life um, in, an, in a cutback that they're considering doing right now. And I don't see a tango as being any different really to that. Uh, within the current resource, what we've been willing to drill out, it's over 200 million pounds. We've got two substantial satellite deposits of tens of millions of pounds each, um, within easy trucking distance. And we know that the all body continues under the current um, pitch shell design. So much like the way that Rossing just kept going deeper and deeper and accessing more ore, um, we expect this project would be able to do that. So it's very reasonable for utilities to think that Itango will become a multi-decade source of politically neutral supply out of Namibia that does give them some commercial diversification and also some geopolitical diversification. And what, and what to say, to remind, remind me again, something to say to interrupt, but remind me again, so Tango, eight, three and a half million pounds, Tango, size, size of that? So some numbers here. So Tango, eight, three and a half million pounds within a total ore reserve of very close to 60 million pounds. So that 60 million pounds ore reserve is the first 60 million pounds of what was a 130 million pound ore reserve when we were looking at this project in a bigger scale. So what we haven't said for anyone new to the story is we did a DFS on a tango at a um, throughput rate of 20 million tonnes per annum back in 2015. So we know the ore's there, it's all been put into ore reserve and that 130 million pounds of ore reserve sits within a mineral resource of 200 and uh, 225 million pounds, which then sits together with a couple of satellite deposits within an ore body that we know continues at depth because of some of the deeper holes we've done and because of our understanding of the geology. So it is enormous. It's just that it hasn't made any sense for us to be drilling more and more holes to expand that resource further and further uh, in a bare market of uranium. Okay, so a big project, little project for, for people. <laughs> Keep it simple for people. There's a bigger project uh, 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 out there as well. Um, just, just on sort of the, the some, I, I get your rationale for for timing now and, and getting us DFS out now. And there's not too many big projects coming online, and there's not too many projects coming along full 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 stop um, in terms of development stage projects. And it, for the utilities, I guess some degree of degree of comfort but you've still got a few hurdles to overcome and time, timing wise they hit that kind of 2026 20, i don't know permitting permitting for instance eia environmental uh, and social management um 
plans and those sorts of things still need to still need to happen have you got the money to kind of get to the point where you can get this fid over the line that you can get the permitting approved well, the only permit that's required is a very insignificant permit for temporary construction water pipeline. So that's a key differentiator for us because we've got the key permit, which is the environmental clearance certificate for the uranium mine itself. We've got the other permits associated with the linear infrastructure. So that's the access roads and all of the different infrastructure that connects from the main grid to our project. The infrastructure is fantastic around us. We've got a water, um, we've got water pipelines and power lines and highways and railways and a deep water port just all around us. But we still need to connect up. So we've got that environmental clearance. We've got the we announced in, as part of this DFS that we've received the environmental clearance for the water pipeline from the town of Swakopmund out to our project. We've received the environmental clearance for the power lines that need to come in from the nearest substation out to our project. We've got the Heritage Commission approvals, um, which is all the archaeological type work. So the only thing that remains, which is uh, a temporary water pipeline that we build of you know smaller dimensions very quickly so that we can pour water into concrete and do that sort of thing. And that's, uh, you know, that's pretty routine. And that's just a case of the next few months we'll get that um, granted to us. So that's really important, Matt, because that means that someone looking at our project and looking at the time frame, they don't have to factor in doubt or risk about getting our environmental approvals. Now, from an operating point of view, the other, um, from a tenure point of view, we do need our mining license application, but we were granted a mineral deposit retention license for five years and what that means is you meet all of the requirements of a mining license, except the price isn't there for you to produce profitably. And when we applied for that, the price, the uranium price was in the low 20s. So it, um, it was a very self-evident thing. Uh, so, you know, we had I met with the uh, Ministry of Mines and Energy yesterday, uh, no, on Monday and presented to them the DFS and had a very uh, focused and a very transparent conversation about the mining license and where it's at. And I feel 100% confident that we've got their support on that. They've, they've just got to work through it. It's, uh, it's not an insignificant document to understand. So we're going to need to hold their hand for a little bit and help them understand what this DFS is all about so that they can go through the rigour of their processes to issue us that mining licence. Okay. You've never been overly promotional. Um, you're quite conservative in the conversations I've had with you and, and, and given the environment in which you operate, that's, that's I guess, to be applauded however um you've got a range between 65 and 80 bucks here people are going to be looking to that and saying well 65 bucks 17 percent irr that's it is what it is it's probably down to the fact that it's such such low grade project um that's what the distractors will will be saying how have you come up with that range of 65 to 80 um, and why does it matter? Because if you're going to be in production in 2026, say, or ramping up, that you're going to have to have conversations with financiers well before then, clearly, to get the get the capex in place and actually build the thing. Um, why why are those numbers to be believed? Because I, I I'm not I don't want to kind of go off and pluck the figures of whatever 200 plus dollars from promoters. I, I want to know that there's some real solid thinking behind those numbers. So I, I would say $65 is unduly conservative. 
for this project and for the market that we've got developing in uranium. But we used that number for the PFS and we used it for the scoping study and continuity counts for a lot. It doesn't help if I start confusing analysts right now. So we put a lot of thought into, well, what is an appropriate number to be signaling to the market for people who understand and believe in the nuclear power thesis and uh, understand the uranium macro that sits beneath that. And we felt that $80 was appropriate. Um, now that's not a thumb suck. It's, we haven't plucked it out of the air. Um, we came with that number in, first of all, derived from our own modeling of the sector and what we believe will be necessary to bring enough new projects into production to meet the uranium demand requirements this decade. But we also tested it with um, you know, leading industry consultants and their price assumptions. Um, and the, I think a lot of investors who are in the uranium space, who are in the uranium thesis and who've been there for a while, they're not even here for $80. Um, yes, you're getting people calling 200 and you can go to our marketing section in our DFS and see a really nice chart, which is in, uh, in real terms, not nominal terms, what was the uranium price during the oil crisis? And you can see that it was well above $200 a pound in today's money. We're facing something very similar to the oil crisis right now. And uh, so, you know, with all of the people calling $200, I think it's fair to say they've at least got something that they can hang their hat on. And of course, this project and this company is about leverage. So for investors who are wanting to have leverage to uranium prices, above $65, above $80, and certainly beyond there, this is an absolute premier project to be looking at. Not only do we have the financial leverage that we've demonstrated through the price sensitivities in our DFS, but we've got the leverage that comes with scalability. Uh, apart from just the mine life extension over decades that we can deliver with this project, it's a very real outcome for us to scale up from the three and a half million pounds to something larger. And bear in mind, we know what this project looks like at 7.2 million pounds or 20 million tonnes of throughput because we've already done a DFS on it. So for us to then take the three and a half million pounds and then modularise it into something larger um, is very much in our contemplation. The water pipeline that we're building is big enough to add extra pumping stations so that we've got enough water to produce 7 million pounds. That's the type of thinking that's been introduced throughout the scoping study PFS and now DFS with this at Tango 8. So it's, it's leverage that comes in at several levels as uh, investors start becoming accustomed to increasing uranium prices and as this uranium market starts to enter more of a bull phase. And don't forget that there will come a time when uranium companies start getting valued for the pounds that they've got in the ground. And on, all, on every measure, uh, we've got an outstanding endowment, an outstanding value in the pounds in the ground. Even if you just restrict our resource down to measured and indicated, it's still 150 million pounds that we've got that we drilled out during the last uranium boom. So I would say to people who are looking at $65, look, if that's as high as uranium will ever get, well then, you know, maybe you're not really a believer in this uranium thesis and maybe this isn't the place for you to be as an investor. But if you understand the nuclear sector and the uranium sector the way that I do, and I know that you do, and most of our shareholders do, uh, Bannerman's now just proven through the delivery of this DFS that we have got absolutely unparalleled price leverage 
and value leverage to an increasing uranium price. And with the market cap at the moment below 300 million Australian dollars, um, it's a very attractive entry price for that degree and that scale of leverage. Okay, so here's here's one for you. I've I've spoken to you know a few groups that have you know funded and and built projects. They read these economic studies every day of the week. They read DFSs, and it's one of I think I've spoken to you about before. You know, I spoke to a chap who's built five mines um, and financed them. He, I think he read was it twenty something like tw- it was like out of twenty five DFSs he read he said there's probably three that made any sense to him okay so D- DFS in itself what is written and signed off by a consultant that's paid for by the company doesn't mean anything it's a it's about the people at the company's ability to actually make the thing happen right so that's number one two. Getting the money uh, in place to actually build the thing, right? And the number three is, and the people don't, they, they dismiss this. They don't actually understand the importance of it. I was talking to a, a, a cobalt company earlier this week about the same thing, which is how do you insert yourself into the ecosystem? There there are routes to market, and you, we referenced you know, shipping and enrichment um, uh, conversion earlier. You've got to be able to understand how that ecosystem works, insert yourself into it, be able to get the product to the end bar utilities, for instance, uh, typically. Um, so th- those are the three big things for me here. I, I can I can understand the we, we've, we've talked enough about price price of you know pounds on the ground or whatever term contracts get signed out. We we, we can talk about the the, the demand cycle, um, supply cycle, or, or lack thereof at the moment. But those three things. How do you how do you answer those three things? Okay, well let's let's take them in order, Matt. So in terms of people, we've had a philosophy over the last several years during the uranium bear market that we needed to have key people in key positions from which we could build a commodity agnostic team around. So we needed the expertise in uranium and we needed the expertise in Namibia. So Mike Leach was the managing, you've met Mike, of course, he was the managing director of the Rossing Uranium Mine when that was the largest uranium mine in the world and continues to be the most appropriate analogue for the Atango project that we'll be building. Um, Our single biggest cost that you can see from the DFS is mining costs. So what did we do? We went and got the best mining guy in the country and Werner Ewald, um, as you've seen with your own eyes, is absolutely stellar. He was the mining manager at Rossing and he's been with us since 2010. And he's our managing director in country who's run this whole process. Now, building a mine is different to operating a mine. And so we established a technical steering committee um, and that was chaired by Norman Green. Um, Norman is a force in his own right in the mining sector in Southern Africa. He's been responsible for building a few of the 10 largest projects ever delivered in sub-Saharan Africa, including the Husab uranium mine, that was a $2 billion construction, and including the Scorpion zinc um, mine and refinery, which was also a multi-billion dollar project um, from Anglo. Both of those projects were in Namibia, and we could go on and on about what he's delivered. Luckily for us, he's a good friend of mine and Mike's, and he lives in Vintalk, semi-retired, and he's loving being involved in this program, um, in this project. And for people following me on Twitter, you'll see his mug on the photo that I took when we're at the uh, Ministry of Mines and Energy on Monday. Um, 
And we've got some real key appointments that we'll be really pleased to announce in the coming weeks as well in terms of people who are guns in their field, who know uh, uranium, know construction and know Namibia. So stay tuned for those. Um, so when it comes to people, by maintaining, I think you could say, the backbone of uh, key knowledge in the key areas, we can then attract the other, uh, the other skills and the other talents that we're going to need. And it's really tough in uranium. There's very few people who really understand uranium. But because once we've got those key people in the key places, then we can get people from both the local uranium industry in Namibia and other um, commodities or other mining sectors as well who can come in. So that part isn't stressing me out, Matt. Um, when it comes to financing, well, uh, middle of the year, we appointed um, debt advisors, um, a firm that doesn't just belt out a whole bunch of real simple gold financings. Uh, they love getting their hands dirty on really complicated stuff. Uh, and so, for example, um, they've uh, recently closed a rare earth financing that's involved multilateral, multi-party financing and delivered an incredible result for a um, ASX 100 company. Um, that's the sort of stuff they like doing and what attracted them to us. So they've been working on this for six months. Um, we've been able to establish with them uh, a really good understanding of what does a conventional finance look like this for this project. If we were going to go to the, the typical route of um, banking syndicates and equator principles and IFC and uh, development funding organisations, what would that look like? And we went to that first because we wanted to establish a baseline and now, now that we understand that baseline, we'll start looking at how do we optimise for shareholders? How do we use offtake financing to try and reduce the amount of equity that would be required, potentially even negate the equity being required? Um, where are the opportunities to use export credit agency financing? Where is our um, money being spent in which markets for equipment and uh, um, contractors and so on. Where is our uranium likely to be sold to? Which governmental agencies can we introduce as a result of that? Which sovereign funding can we introduce as a result of that? Um, so there's a whole range of intermediate steps between conventional financing on the one hand and, you know, ultimately what might be um, the balance sheets of our customers that we might be using to finance this. Um, so Although very few companies have been financed in uranium over the last decade, uh, only a couple of projects in the Western world um, of anything like this scale, um, we're ahead of the game on this, Matt, and we've used exactly the right team who can deliver these types of results. So the last question, if I understand it correctly, was how are we embedding ourselves amongst our customers? How are we received in the nuclear power industry? Who are we to the nuclear power industry for a start? Um, and look, we've been fortunate with that. We've Bannerman's only ever been a uranium company. We weren't one of these companies who were uranium when it was hot, then flipped to cobalt, then flipped to rare earths, then flipped to graphite, then flipped to this. Um, we've got a pedigree of being a uranium company focused on the Atango project in Namibia since 2005. And over that time, we've become well known in the nuclear power industry. Um, and I've had the opportunity to build my profile, but also my collaborative and collegiate relationships in the nuclear power industry through the work that I've done, for example, with WNA. Um, I currently sit on the advisory panel that advises the board and the director general of the World Nuclear Association. Um, there's no other juniors who've ever done that. Um, but also through 
um, speaking for years now at various industry conferences. The first time I spoke at the World Nuclear Association Symposium, which is kind of the main event globally for the industry. Um, the first time I spoke there on the big stage was 2010. So that's been a deliberate strategy that hasn't, um, that hasn't been because I'm trying to become famous. It's because uh, it's important that the utilities have this project in their mind when they start to wonder and formulate, well, where are they going to get their pounds from? And again, going back to the timing of this, utilities, they're pretty distracted at the moment. They're not writing contracts very much. They're not writing very many contracts with um, new entrants and the price is not where we'd want to be writing contracts right now. But that could turn very, very quickly. Once they've solved their enrichment challenges that they've got and they've secured their conversion contracts, they will immediately move on to uranium. And that's why we want them to know that a Tango has had its DFS released. This is what it looks like. And I can be talking to them on the front foot about the fact that we're moving forward with financing and we're going to be ready when they're ready to have sensible conversations about long-term contracting. You can't do that if, you've, if you don't have a DFS because they, they've got a fair idea what cost inflation is doing to the sector. Again, if you go to the marketing section of our DFS, you can see what trade tech um, have um, calculated as being increasing costs in the industry. That's a chart that's produced for utilities, not for investors. So they know cost inflation is a big deal. And if I went to them and I said, look, you know, here's this PFS that we did 18 months ago. Trust me, these are our numbers. Uh, I'm obviously not going to have the same degree of credibility as I will now going, here's a fresh off the shelf current being um, further delivered through front end engineering design DFS that describes to you exactly what this project looks like. Okay. I said right at the beginning, some of the market has reacted to your DFS. Been, been a few comments, positive, not so positive. Um, it's going to take, it's, it's a big report. Actually, it's, you know what, I, I, would, I would definitely um, round of applause, quite frankly, for the amount of detail in it with regards to all of the moving parts. I think I can I can probably learn a little bit by reading through it um, once again. But um, when when do you think there will be a reaction or an understanding of the process that you've been through, some of the topics we've discussed today, and the importance of timing and why you've done this now and what it's going to enable you to do? Or is it just have to you know ride this thing out like every other uranium company out there and say you know all boats float on a high tide cliche um would you think this has put you firmly in control of your own destiny look absolutely we are one of a very few number of companies that actually know what their costs are because a company that's got a scoping study or even a PFS, they've only got an idea of what their costs are. Any company that's got even a DFS that's more than six or 12 months old, they don't know what their costs are. They've got a DFS that, that's almost become meaningless in the current cost inflation environment. That puts us in rarefied air. And to answer the first part of your question, Matt, we're risk off at the moment. You know, in the last couple of weeks, we are risk off. Investors are not looking for reasons to buy. They're not looking for reasons to position themselves into a 80 or 100 or a 200 or pick a number uranium price. They're scared. It's risk off. 
So to answer your question, when will we and our shareholders receive the price benefit of this definitive feasibility study? It'll be the moment that turns and the moment that investor sentiment returns and people are either looking to position themselves in uranium for the first time or in a greater way, or they're looking to choose companies who offer the most potential. So when investors are looking forward, when they're looking optimistically, when they're looking to um, position themselves to make money, not to save money like they are at the moment, well, I think it's really clear where, where we stand. It's an outstanding project. It's got robust economics. We're in Namibia where we can actually develop it quickly. Um, it's of strategic scale and got this scalability as well. So I think as soon as investors are looking for the right things, it's really clear that um, Bannerman Energy will be a really deserving corner in any investor's uranium portfolio.